You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David. Thank you, worship team. I'm always blessed by the number of hours so many people put in to make this day when we gather together a special day. So thank you, worship team. Thank you, guys in the back. Thank you, everybody who works to make this day special. But not only this day, every day at Grace Community Church. We're beginning a series on the spiritual gifts, and it's fairly complex this morning. So let me just warn you, it's gonna, we're going to go into uh, deep waters today. We've been skimming along the surface for two weeks. Today we're going in. But even then, it's a foundation for what's to come. A couple of things I do want to say. Encourage you, I just want to encourage you to sign up for uh, Discovery Lunch on February 5 and Grace Connection on February 18 and 19. You do need to sign up for those. Ricky mentioned them in the announcements. But also, you don't have to sign up for next Sunday night for Grace Matters, but I really want to encourage you to be here. You can't imagine the information that is given in those sessions. This session about adoption and fostering, the team that is banded together to lead this ministry, very impressive stuff that they've done. Now, you may be thinking, I don't want to come to a session about adoption and fostering because I might be convicted to do it. Um, Don't think like that. There are so many ways that you can get involved in this ministry, and many hands make light work. So let's support one another in um, the the new ministry going forward and a lot of information next Sunday night. I'm going to talk about it Next Sunday morning and the following Sunday morning, I'm going to make you feel guilty if you didn't come. No, I'm just kidding. That's the only time I've been tempted to say, you really need to be here as these grace matters. So let's fill up the place next Sunday night. Well, after last week's review of the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians, we're jumping in uh, to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11. Now, if I were to ask you, Say, who do you think the best Christians in our church would be? You would likely say, I'm really not comfortable with that question. And then, Okay, let me rephrase. Who are the spiritual ones among us? I'm still not comfortable with that question. And I affirm your level of discomfort. Um, I... I, I have been thinking as we've been looking at this section uh, of 1 Corinthians 12, how much it all goes together. Everything that's been said just comes back. It it all builds on uh, what's been said before, and then it just all swims in the same streams together since I'm on this water metaphor the last few weeks. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1, Paul chided Corinthian members for being carnal instead of spiritual. Now... He is going to say, your thought that you are spiritual and others are not is is an equal sign of immaturity. So it's fair to say there's a category for spiritual because he said you should be spiritual, but you're carnal. But now he's saying don't base your spirituality or don't judge your own spirituality based on what the Lord seems to be doing or not doing in your life. So, this spirit is going to be addressed in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. As we have consistently observed in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, church members divided themselves into groups. Some it was around preachers. I follow this preacher. I follow that preacher. Others it was socioeconomic. And others education level, but it always ended up being one group essentially versus another group in Corinth. Paul's like, what is that? Christ died to tear down these walls. Why 
are you building them up? Since they all believed in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they understood that the spiritual gifts God had given them to be indicators of who was spiritual and who was not. Oh, you don't have that gift, do you? Hmm. Are, are you sure you're a Christian? Now, that was really going on. And we mask that kind of attitude, but it's probably more prevalent than we would like to think. And so we begin several weeks in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Three chapters that were written to bring unity to the first century church, but somehow seem to cause disunity and division in the 21st century church, depending on how you interpret these chapters. We are every bit as capable of playing loose with the truth and the ways of God as the believers were in the first century, uh, in Corinth were, even if we do it in a more respectable manner. So before we get into today's text, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 11, I want to share some introductory thoughts that will hopefully serve as an overview of where we're going to be going in the next several weeks. So it's been a week of, couple of weeks of list. Last week, we talked about the review of those first 11 chapters and several uh, different items on the list. And now this is the foundation for where we're going to be going over these next three chapters. There will be a great deal of application in the sermons along the way. Uh, so these are sermons, not just teaching uh, or mere Bible lessons, which are important, but you expect more on Sunday morning. But there is much to unpack and understand before we can properly apply the text. So here are a few things to know and to keep in mind as we wade in, beginning with much like chapters 8 through 10, Paul is going to use a complex theological argument in chapters uh, 12 through 14 to address one issue. In the other one, it was the eating of meat that had been offered to idols. This one, it's the use of tongues in church services without the aid of an interpreter. Now, please do your best at any point to resist the temptation to say, I know where he's going. I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going, but I'm telling you with the study I've had to do on this, I'm not sure I know where I'm going. But it's, it is a very complex issue. I've got my head around it, but there's a lot of groundwork that we have to lay before we can all jump in. And even then, we're not going to all agree. What? Much of what is uh, said in our day about the subject of speaking in tongues is based on theological conclusions from several places in Scripture rather than from clear teaching on specific verses. One of the great sins, especially of the American church, but probably the church everywhere, is that we, we just jump onto one verse. We take one verse and we can, man, we can make a lot out of that verse. And a lot of our lives are built around just one thought. Maybe it's taken out of context, or even if it's in context, there's a broader picture to be seen. When you seek to isolate a verse from the bigger picture, that's when you get into real trouble. So even if we acknowledge that the use of tongues in Corinth was problematic, we only have to look back to 1 Corinthians 11, where the Lord's Supper, the, the observance of the Lord's Supper, Supper was problematic in the ways that the Corinthians observed it. In chapters 8 to 10, Paul addressed this issue of meat offered to idols. When is it okay to eat it? What are idols? Are they just a piece of block of wood or is there some demonic activity going on? What? All of those complicated issues he dealt with in the same fashion that he's going to deal with tongues in the church services in chapters 12 through 14. The use of tongues without an interpreter. Second, Paul will address this issue as he did back in chapters 8 to 10 with two concerns in mind. First, the need to build up other believers or at the very least not to tear them down. And second, 
the effect of their attitudes and actions on unbelievers who happen to wander into the service. Corinth was one of those places, as far as best guesses, maybe there were as many as 100 people that attended church, and they were in, the, in a large home uh, where people would kind of wander in and wander out. You'd die if people wandered in and out of your home like they did in the first century. I remember when I was a kid, my dad would... We'd go to Rupert and Doris Weathers' home, and he'd just walk in, and I'd like, can you do that? And he's like, yeah. And that's what good friends did. They just walked in and out of people's homes. Well, in that day, it was like a public event. And so Paul says, how you are conducting yourselves in this service is going to have an effect on the unbelievers who come in this way. But look, why would we not approach all church matters in this way. It doesn't mean we should adjust our message to be palatable to all, but we must consider the impact that our attitudes and actions have on one another and on unbelievers. Also, once again, as in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, this argument will be developed gradually with theological conclusions coming in chapter 14. Look, I'm going to say a lot about this issue today, but not nearly all there is to say. We must be patient and pay close attention to the details. Speaking of which, two Greek words are used for gifts in the New Testament. Pneumaticon. It's bad enough looking at it. You Tougher if you don't, don't see it. Pneumaticon means spiritual persons or maybe spiritual things or simply spirituals. That's what some translations do. Now, concerning spirituals, most often, though, pneumaticon, and that's a plural, all kinds of different variations in these word groups. Most often, it means spiritual gifts. Pneuma is the word for spirit. And so that's what, the reason that there are so many different words used to translate pneumaticon is that the noun can either be masculine or neuter. And that seems like a lot more than you need to know on a Sunday morning already. The translators have settled on the best option in most of the translation though, which is spiritual gifts. Charisma. Grace gift, most often translated as grace. Anybody know a person uh, named Charis or Charis, they may call him? Charis is the Greek word for grace. Thus, these gifts are given to us by God according to his grace. And this knowledge ought to make us be a cause for gratitude, not for boasting, surely not for division. Fifth, 1 Corinthians is the only one of Paul's letters in which he addresses the use of tongues. And frankly, tongues were a mess in Corinth. And so you say, aha, that's a reason to say that tongues shouldn't exist in our church today. Well, uh, the only place in the epistles that the Lord's Supper is addressed is in 1 Corinthians 11. And it was a mess. So what do we do? Just throw that out too? No, you can't do it on that basis. You may form a theological conclusion and say, well, I think the tongues are no longer in existence today. That's not my view, which I'll talk about later. But if you say that, it can't be based on because it was a mess at Corinth. There were a lot of things that were a mess at Corinth. And it, and it really shouldn't be surprising <clears throat> since so many other issues are addressed here that are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament epistles. Sixth, tongues comes from the Greek glossa. The Greek laleo means to speak. So glossaleoia means to speak in tongues. And glossaleoia is not in the New Testament. It's um, smashing two words together to form this one word. One of the chief questions that we must answer is whether the tongues were known languages or ecstatic utterings, which means they, they wouldn't have been a language that existed in that day. In Acts 2, 
people spoke, the, the, the disciples spoke with tongues and all heard in their own language. We'll spend more time thinking about Acts chapter 2. But in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is going to talk about the language of angels. <clears throat> was that hypothetical? Was he saying there's a language unknown? Again, I know you'd like the answers right now or you'd like to give your opinion right now, but we'll see about it as we go. We cannot <clears throat> know for sure, although people make fairly definitive statements of, on both sides of the issue, and both sides can, can come up with some pretty solid theological underpinnings. Why does God not make this as clear as we would like? I don't know, but he doesn't. I think one of the reasons, I mean, look, can you imagine <clears throat> Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector in the same group of disciples? Why did God do that? He's constantly calling us to die to ourselves and love one another deeply in spite of our differences, despite our differences. And <clears throat> the unity that comes with a diversity of gifts and a diversity of personalities is a beautiful, beautiful testimony <clears throat> to what the Lord is doing. So another question is whether or not the gifts of tongues, actually I've already addressed this, is still in existence or not. We're going to find out. I can, whatever your belief is this, <clears throat> I, will say, I will say this. Sitting not far from you this morning is somebody who disagrees with you. Somebody who's very godly. Somebody who knows the word well. There's someone who disagrees with you. We'll explore this in more detail when we get to chapter 14. And you go, ah, chapter 14. Remember, Paul laid out this complex theological argument. And we need time to marinate in the truths and move slowly <clears throat> so that we can exit these chapters unified, even if we disagree, and so avoid the very issue that Paul was concerned about, division over spiritual gifts. Last in this list, the New Testament sense about grace gifts is that the prim three primary texts where we find the gifts Romans 12, 3 to 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, and then verse 28, but it's a little bit broader than that. We get to that next week. Ephesians 4, 7 to 16 are not exhaustive. There's another place, 1 Peter 4, 9 and 10, or 10 and 11, I think it is, and he just divides the gift in the gifts of spoken gifts and service gifts. But these places are not exhaustive. These lists are not exhaustive. So... You know, you wouldn't expect to find a graphic designer in the New Testament, right? You might find, you might say, well, that comes under this other gift. But the Lord did not intend for any one of those lists to name them all, or even all of them together, but give us an idea of how he works in the church and uses <coughs> our gifts. So don't despair if you can't find what seems to be your spiritual gift. So many points that could be made here. Like, the, like gifts are meant to build one another up or build others up. They're not meant for our own edification or building ourselves up. And there are lots of other things to think about, but we'll, we'll get to them as we go. There's only one thing that I suspect we will all share after this message this morning and that is a sense of incompleteness on the topic at hand. I'm praying, I've been praying this week against a spirit of frustration or superiority or inferiority. One of Paul's primary objectives in his instruction was to encourage unity and to discourage in the strongest terms a spirit of competition and elitism. And look, wherever you stand on this issue, you're tempted to that. A spirit of competition and elitism. We're not going to all agree on the topics that we're going to cover these next five to six weeks, but that's okay. Be patient. Not everything 
I'm saying this to myself really more than you. Be patient. Not everything can be said today. And even after everything has been said at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, <clears throat> we're going to need to agree to disagree on some of the issues lest we fall into the sin of the Corinthians. So before I read this text, would you bow your heads and pray with me for just a moment? And if this is not too presumptuous, would you consider praying after me in your heart, in your mind, not out loud, but silently, if you prefer not to, I understand. Lord, humble my heart before you this morning. I submit myself to your Holy Spirit and to your word. Give me a deep love for my brothers and sisters in this church and for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in other churches and with whom I might disagree on these and other matters. Lord, we pray this in the name of Christ, who breaks down all barriers and makes us one in him. Amen. Our text today is 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, but I'm only going to read the first three verses for our initial reading. And yes, I am halfway through the sermon, uh, so you can take heart about that. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm going to stop in the middle of this, say just a few things. I don't like to do that for too long, but there's something, uh, it's not coming up later that needs to be said now. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. What Paul is saying is, you you Gentiles, not the Jews, but the Gentiles, which probably made up the majority of the congregation, used to worship in pagan temples. Now, in chapters 8 to 10, he talked about what are, what are idols? They're nothing but stone or wood. But if you mess around with them, you are messing with the devil. And it's the devil who led you astray. Speaking in tongues was part of that experience. That does not negate speaking in tongues, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 12. At the very end, he says, do not forbid to speak with tongues. But remember last week, if you were here last week, I said, if I, if I could bring a summary of 1 Corinthians into one sentence, it would be this. They were trying to bring the ways of the world into the church and make them the ways of the Lord. It's like they baptized activities and said, well, now they're spiritual. Paul was saying, yeah, what happened there has nothing to do with here. Therefore, verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. We don't know exactly what this is about, but Possibly some people before in the pagan worship had said Jesus is cursed. Or now, those who had certain gifts accuse those of not who didn't have gifts, say, well, you really don't mean it when you say Jesus is Lord, so you must be actually cursing Jesus. Paul said, get over that now. Let's establish from the beginning that no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry for preaching during the reading of the text. Let me read it again. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, and be seated.
Right off the bat, we understand that Paul was addressing a question that they had asked. Now concerning means about that question you posed to me in a letter. But they weren't asking, so Paul, we're a little confused here. Tell us what ought to be done in the church services. They were asking it like, Mom, tell my brother he's wrong. Mom, tell him he's stupid. Come on. That's the way they were doing it. It was like, you need to set these people straight. Verses 2 and 3, as you've already seen, are rather complex. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul had condemned this spirit of the rich withholding food from the poor because surely God is blessing us. Or like, Mom, I don't want to give them the food because you tell them how wrong they are. And the Lord said, no, let me tell you how wrong you are. Some of you are sick and some of you have already died for this spirit of elitism in the church. And now he's saying, you think you're all this because you got that gift? And they don't. Let me set the record straight from the beginning. No one who says Jesus is Lord is accursed. And they are saying what they say by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, clearly, it's not just parroting the words, Jesus is Lord. It means you've given your whole life over to him. It wasn't true in this day, but this is maybe the earliest Christian confession. It wasn't true then, but, but maybe 10, 15 years later, people were being brought before the government. And they said, say that Caesar is Lord. And they said, I can't. Because Jesus is Lord. They said, yeah, yeah, whatever. You can say Jesus is Lord, but you also have to say Caesar is Lord. And they said, no, Ephesians 4, there's only one Lord. And his name is Jesus. And that's what they were saying in these these church services. Jesus is Lord. And some were looking at others and saying, yeah, right, whatever. You don't use the gifts that I have. And you know what? We're just as guilty of. Oh, you preach topical messages, right? You don't preach expository messages. This spirit of elitism finds its way to our hearts. And we're deceived about how arrogant we can be by thinking we're so much better than others. Paul goes on to say in verses 4 to 7, That there are a variety of spiritual gifts. And all are ordained by the Lord. Now, when we get to 14, he's going to narrow it down and just talk about two. Tongues and prophecy. But we got a long way to go before we get there. So beginning in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. But the same spirit. See how this is building on his argument? All who confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, in whose lives attest to their relationship with Christ, belong to the Spirit. And there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the exaltation Of individuals in the body. No, it doesn't say that, does it? These gifts are given for the common good. A couple of important things to note here. First, even though we attribute spiritual gifts to the Holy Spirit and for good reason, the whole Trinity is involved. In the New Testament, when you see Lord, it's almost always referring to Jesus. When you see God, it's almost always, not in every single case, but almost always referring to God the Father. Now, these terms are used interchangeably. Each member of the Trinity is fully God, and yet we have a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One essence, one nature, Interesting connections in these verses. Gifts are associated with the Holy Spirit. Service is appropriately associated with Jesus who washed the disciples' feet. 
and power is associated with God the Father. Even so, verse 7, the gifts are made known through the Spirit, so we call them spiritual gifts, for the common good, which is the second point of note. It's for the common good. Next week, we're going to see how these varieties of gifts go to build up the body, and they work together for the common good. For today, suffice it to say that we are given spiritual gifts, not for our own advancement, but for the good of the body. Then, verses 8 through 11. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. It's not people just going off on their own. It's the Spirit leading them. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Every word is loaded with meaning. So I want to make a brief comment about these gifts with a few general observations along the way. First, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge. Utterance comes from logos, which you know to be word. A word of wisdom, a word of of knowledge. This likely affirms those who had a great deal of wisdom, or those who have a great deal of wisdom in the church, just like Solomon had wisdom in some of the decisions that he had to make. You know what it's like when you've got a tough decision. There may be one or two people you really want to talk to, and you consider these to be wise people. They've been given the gift of, the, of a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. You know, people that just always have a scripture for something, and it's not taken out of context, but it's, it just hits at the right place. I, I, I saw her a while ago, I thought, Margaret Staley. I, I, Margaret Staley is like that. She's just got a word of knowledge. She's always got a verse of scripture, and it's fitting to the moment at hand. <clears throat> The more years you commit to reading through the Bible, the more likely you are to, to, to possess and develop both of these gifts. But wait a minute. Do we get to choose our gifts? Or can we work to, to get a gift? Do, can, can we um, develop these gifts? Well, well, surely Paul told Timothy, stir up the gift. It is within you. Work on it. But what about choosing? We know the Spirit is the one who gives us the gifts. So even more basic, are spiritual gifts just the natural talents that we have been given by our Creator? Or are spiritual gifts special abilities that are given to us for the issue at hand? Well, clearly, these gifts come from the Lord. But remember, the natural talents that we have and the inclinations that we have, we are people who are made in the image of God. And so it's, it's often you see those natural talents and spiritual gifts intertwined, intermingling, just all flowing in and out. So we, <laughs> if natural gifts are enhanced over time, the more you know about the Word, the more wisdom that you have that comes from the Word, the more likely you are to be considered by others, this person has this spiritual gift or these spiritual gifts. The gift of faith mentioned in verse 9 is not the saving faith that all believers possess, but extraordinary faith in times of difficulty for the church. Once again, I can think of 
Diane McLaughlin. I, I can think of, think of a lot of people who at times have come alongside of me and said, you know, we just have to trust the Lord in this. These, this, word of, this gift of faith is based on the promises of God, not just something that you work up in yourself. One of the big problems of the day is that people have faith in faith. Not in anything substantive. They say, well, you know, you just got to have faith that everything's going to work out all right. Well, what's your faith based? Well, you know, you just have to have faith. If you think good thoughts, it'll happen. But our faith, those with the gift of faith, based on the promises of God. The gifts of healings. And the working of miracles require a bit of thought. In scripture, miracles are almost always associated with the affirmation of the gospel message that has been proclaimed. Think about the times that the miracles are prominent in scripture. I mean, they're scattered all throughout, but there were times where miracles were very prominent. During Moses' time. During Elijah and Elisha's time. When the northern kingdom had turned away from the word and they were calling them to repentance. Elijah and Elisha were calling them to repentance during Jesus' time. In fact, the gospel of John calls it what? What does he call miracles? Signs. These are signs to affirm the word that I preach. I am the Messiah and these miracles give testimony to the validity of what I'm saying to you. And then with the apostles... There were miracles in that time, once again, affirming the message of the gospel. It seems to me, and look, this is just my observation and conclusions that I have formed based on my understanding of Scripture and just what I have seen and heard. Uh, it seems to me that such gifts are more prominent today in areas where either the gospel message has not been widely proclaimed or in which there is intense spiritual warfare. Perhaps that's why Pentecostals do so well in Latin America. They're not afraid of demons. If I see a demon, I'm calling David or Ricky, one, you know. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with a demon. I mean, look, I've been in places where I know the spirit of evil is working. And, and I've sensed the prayers of God's people and the power of the spirit of God. But when you're going up against that in places where voodoo and demonic activity, well, the spirit of God works mightily often in those places. This is, this is the same area where the gift of distinguishing between spirits is important. But it's always good to have someone in the church who says, you know what, I know this seems like a good, good idea, but I, I'm just not so sure about this. Why don't we pray about this together? And hear a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge from someone who is so gifted. <clears throat> this is going to all make better sense when we get to chapter 14. I, I, I want to think about this a little bit more, though. Do these gifts of healings and miracles exist in our land today? Well, I, I surely would not say that they don't. Absolutely not. But think about this, too. Anyone who is healed is eventually going to die. There's a purpose. There's a reason for God giving the gift of healing to someone. When my first wife, Linda, had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, you, wouldn't, you just wouldn't believe some of the things that some, some people said to us about our lack of faith or our lack of obedience. I wanted her to be healed. I invited people to come and pray for her healing. But the Lord chose not to heal her. What to make of that? Surely not that it was a lack of faith on her part or on my part. Surely not that there was sin. I mean, surely there was sin in our lives, but there's no indication that there was any of that. 
And we absolutely can never accuse somebody of a lack of faith because of their unwillingness or their inability to get better. But God does things during time. And maybe I'll talk about it. I didn't say this in the first service, and I say it now. I'm going to say it again later. But if you look at the storyline of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, creation, but then fall. We fail, and nothing's been right since then, right? All there are good moments. We're made in the image of God. God is good, common grace, all of that. But we're redeemed in Christ. And we're given a promise of restoration, the first two chapters in Genesis, the last two in Revelation. Book ends. A giant inclusio for a theological term, a free one for the day. It's going to be the only thing better in Revelation than it was in the garden is that we're singing the song of the redeemed. How that makes it better, I'm not fully sure, except I know how grateful I am now. God has saved me when he didn't have to. Through Christ, you didn't have to love me that way. What I think is that occasionally people are healed. Man, you know what that is? In addition to being really good for life right now, it's a picture of restoration. It's a picture of what it's going to be like one day. Right now, though, we're living in a fallen world. And so... gift of healings and the gift of miracles, while a beautiful blessing, point to a better day. All of this is going to make more sense when we get to chapter 14. So this leaves three gifts, prophecy, various gifts of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And wouldn't you know it, we're just about out of time, so I really don't, I really can't. Look, it, it would just be wrong to speak about it today. We'll get into this a little bit more next week at the end of uh, chapter 12. And since it is the primary focus of chapters 12 to 14, we're going to have plenty of time on this subject. I want to say this again for you to ponder. We're going to see clearly in chapter 14 that all gifts are not only in service to the body, but they're also in support of the message of Scripture. They're grace gifts. God has given them to us, and they're to be used in such a way that not only do we build up others, and not only is it for the common good, for all of our good, but it is also in service of the gospel message that is preached and sung and heard all through our services here and all through the world in amazing ways that the Lord sends his word out. I don't believe, and I'm going to, you're going to, some of you are going to disagree with me. I don't believe that tongues are no longer in use. We have disagreement even on our elder board. Our Constitution talks about the, what we would call the miracle gifts. And it strongly supports, in a, a, a case of someone being sick, for you to call on the elders and follow the, the protocol set forth in James chapter 5. Once again, I think the miracle gifts are more prominent in places where the word has not been heard and they're given for the purpose of giving, of providing evidence of the Spirit's presence and work and the validity of Scripture. Praying in tongues is a different issue. I'm not going to say that if tongues are used in churches or in prayer in our land, that they're misplaced. I know that some of you think that tongues have ceased, along with the gifts of apostles and prophets. I can make a pretty good case for that. From Ephesians chapter 2, apostles and prophets established the truth of Scripture. And when their time ended, thus ended the need for apostles 
and prophets. But the gift of prophecy still going on. You may be surprised when we get to it next week or two, what exactly the gift of prophecy is. Maybe not exactly what you're thinking. Now look, some of you are uncomfortable with the thought of tongues. And surely chapter 14 is going to criticize the misuse of tongues. But others of you have been extremely blessed with this gift. And in fact, this gift is, may have been life-changing for you. And, and this is only one reason the issue is so sensitive. In our church constitution, we don't take a definitive stand on whether the miracle gifts are still evident in the church today. But it's fairly clear that we are not what you would call a charismatic church. D.A. Carson really dislikes the way that that is used. He thinks it's a misuse of the Greek word charisma. Um, but I'm not going to go into that now, maybe a little bit later. But just because we understand with the variety of gifts and the variety of opinions we just don't fall out as a charismatic church. So I would love to have been able to bring several points of application to this message, but there's just no time. Next week will be mostly application, though. So hang on. Since we must handle these three chapters with extreme care and work hard to preserve Unity. It's a good time for us to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him teach the Beatitudes. It's just almost always a good time to do that. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. See, in the crowds he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are humble, poor in spirit. They're not arrogant in spirit, saying, I know what needs to be said about this. They're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin and the sin of the community and the sin of the nation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's a good line to remember all week this week. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the dividers. The peacemakers could also be referring to the evangelists who try to help people understand that peace between God and man exists in Jesus. But surely that's true among us too. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Be depressed, mope, accuse, uh, no, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we understand that our only hope of heaven is in Jesus. We're sinners. We stand condemned before a just and holy God. 
but a God who also lovingly sent his son to live the life we could not and to die a death that we deserved. Jesus died in my place. As much as I love Allison, my wife, I can't die for her. She can't die for me. I can't take her punishment. But Jesus took mine. And Lord, if there are those this morning who have been trying to be good enough, just hoping that their efforts are going to be good enough to stand before you one day, or good enough to just raise their kids in the right way, Lord, help us all to understand the truth of the gospel, that only in Christ is there hope and redemption. After that, it can get fuzzy if we don't remember the truth of what's coming in a few weeks, 1 Corinthians 13. May we love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, might. And may we love one another as we love ourselves. And Lord, as we enter, begin this series thinking about spiritual gifts, we pray that our hearts would be committed to gratitude, humility, and service to the body, to the preaching of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.